All right, flip open your Bibles to Exodus 20, and uh, we're kind of working with Deuteronomy 5, but I'm mostly just focusing on Exodus 20 uh, today. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. Uh, Our message is called Imagination and Speculation, and uh, we will read our text, pray, and then we'll go right in. Exodus 20, verse 4, these are the words of God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am your God. Uh, Excuse me. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have gathered here as your people at the start of a new week in order to worship and praise and honor you through singing and prayer, repentance and preaching. We ask and pray that you would equip this ecclesia, this church, to serve your son's kingdom this week. There are idols to topple and people to disciple, so please help us to accomplish this great task. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so, so far in this series, I made the argument that the giving of the law was delivered in an envelope of grace. The giving of the law was delivered in an envelope of grace. The ten words are most assuredly for us today, and we would do well to pay close attention to them. In fact, when it comes to obedience to King Jesus, the argument thus far has been that to obey the ten words is to obey the king. That's how we obey. That's our standard. Many Christians will talk about obedience but because of their antinomian proclivities, they will speak about it in vague terms. Be nice is the generally accepted law of contemporary Christianity today. As long as you're nice, you're in the cool kids gang. But we're not Martianites, chopping up the Bible and only picking and choosing what we want to believe. The heretic uh, Marcion did that. No, we are to be biblicists and theonomists, meaning that we are people who love the Bible and who love the law of God. Uh, I, I, I have very little tolerance for someone who says, well, we're not supposed to love the law anymore because that's done away with. Then you literally have to cut out the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. So obedience, obedience by definition implies a standard, right? You ask your children to obey, to do something that they are to obey, you are implying a standard in it, in it right there. So. Our job is not to go and make a different one. So we reject the be nice Christianity as if that's the only standard we have. Now, when it comes to obedience, there is a better way. That is the way of the law and the gospel of God. Our obedience is what we can call a reactionary pursuit. Our obedience is a reactionary pursuit, meaning we react to the gospel by repentance and faith obviously the Holy Spirit leading the way in that, and then we pursue holiness in terms of God's standards, God's righteous standards. That's what I mean by your obedience is a reactionary pursuit. You react to the gospel by the power of the Spirit, and then you pursue God's holy standards, His righteous standards. Now, that was the case in the Old Testament, by the way. That was the case in the Old Testament, and it's also the case, still the case, in the New Testament. So I'll say it like this, and I'm sort of riffing off the Puritan Samuel Bolton, but the law sends us to the gospel for resurrection. The law sends us to the gospel for resurrection, and the gospel sends us back to the law for illumination. 
And the Holy Spirit is, of course, involved in all of it. I'll say it again. The law of God sends us to the gospel for resurrection, but the gospel sends us back to the law for illumination. So uh, Bolton said it like this back in, what, 16, the 1600s. He said, the law sends us to the gospel so that we can be justified. The gospel sends us back to the law so that we can inquire what is our duty now as those who are justified. So I'm kind of riffing off Bolton there. Now, last week we covered the first word, and the first word tells us not to put other gods before the face of Yahweh. Not to put other gods before the face of Yahweh. We are not to worship and serve other gods, other idols. But here is a working principle that we need to keep in mind. Where sin is forbidden, duty is required. Where a sin is forbidden, it's off limits, duty is required. All right? So, for example, the cookie jar. All right, kids? It's sort of an illustration that we've used for, I don't know, thousands of years, I'm sure. <laughs> but if your parents say, no, you can't have that cookie, that, that's, that's what's forbidden. But something else is required of you. Don't whine about it. <laughs> it's required that you obey your parents, but don't whine about it. Don't go on and lament and, and, and start heaping imprecatory prayers upon your parents because you didn't get a, a cookie. Okay, so where sin is forbidden, something else is required. Duty is required. Responsibility is required. So where sin is not permitted, we have a responsibility to proactively do something else. So sin is off the table, but something is on the table. Sin is off the table, but something that is there. Something is on the table. And this is where the second word comes into play, the second commandment. The first commandment tells us that we are to worship the one true God, the creator of all things, and only Him. The second commandment reinforces the first by telling us that there is a way to worship the one true God properly. In the first word, Yahweh tells us whom we are to worship. That's Him. But in the second word, Yahweh tells us how He'd like to be worshipped. How he'd like to be worshipped. We are not to give ourselves to imagination and speculation, nor do we need some sort of local deity to, to somehow mediate between us and God. That's what he's ruling out. Rather, we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, which means we must worship God correctly. There's a way to worship God, and there's a way to not worship God. So I kind of want to reiterate this, comparing the first two commandments here. The first word prohibits the worship of other gods. The second word prohibits the false worship of the one true God. Does that make sense? So don't worship false gods, but instead worship God correctly. Or, or, or say it, I'll say it a different way. Don't go finding a false god to worship, and don't go worshiping Yahweh falsely. And that's the aim of the second commandment. So let's consider our passage. We'll just kind of move on from there. Note here in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, that we have a bit more than what we had in verse 3. Verse 3 had little to no qualifications. I mean, we know from the beginning he said, look, I, I brought you, Israel, out of the land of slavery, out of the, out of the problem of Egypt. The, the, the slavery is, was sin. I redeemed you and brought you out. And therefore, kind of in the light of that, he says in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So that's the first commandment, what we talked about last week. But here, there's a little bit more to it. Let's look at it again. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above 
or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I the, Lord am your, uh, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me. But, here's the promise, verse 6, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I need to say this up front, because this is a commandment that is very much hotly debated, in, especially in Reformed circles. And I may not give you all the answers you want today, but afterwards we have a few minutes where we can take some questions if you need to. But the commandment here doesn't forbid the making of all images, as though it forbids all forms of artwork, sculpting, painting, and such. I'm walking a tight line here, so hang, hang with me. Now, there are certainly some Christians in history who have believed that. You shouldn't make any artwork at all, ever, because the Second Amendment says not to. Now, if we believe that this command means that we can't make images altogether, then we can't make any images at all. So, I guess what the kids are coloring today will have to be burned in the fire. All right? <laughs> that would be, a, in my view, a wrong interpretation of this commandment. Yet, we also know from various places that even God himself chose to adorn his tabernacle and his temple with certain images. So, for example, in Exodus 25:18, Yahweh instructs Moses to make a cherubim of gold. We know the two cherubim were on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. The lampstand in the tabernacle and in, in, in the future temple would be shaped like almond blossoms, according to Exodus 25:33. There, th those are things we find under the earth. Obviously, an, an almond blossom is something we, we would see um, in the earth. Now, we also know in chapter 31, that we have all sorts of things being made out of gold and silver, bronze and stone and wood, things to adorn the temple. So does God rule out the making of art? You know, that picture of green grass and a clear blue sky that you have hanging on your fridge. No, God loves art. So I want to be clear on that. God is an artist. He loves art. He uses art. So we're not talking about the making of images, period. We're talking about the making of images for the purpose of worshiping God through them. That's the issue. Now, Yahweh, and this is kind of what's underlining all of this in the Second Commandment, Yahweh himself cannot be mediated by things that men make. That's the issue. Yahweh himself cannot be mediated. There's no go-between. Okay, we know there's one mediator, and the man is Christ Jesus. We know that from uh, 1 Timothy. But... Here, in the pagan world, God says, Yahweh says, I cannot be mediated by anything that you make. I don't need to like somehow channel my energy through that nice wooden statue you made. So that's the main concern. The first commandment disallowed other gods before the face of the one true God. The second commandment here rules out images of Yahweh. So it's not about restricting art, but it's actually about restricting certain cultic practices in the Hebraic religion. So we are, we, think of it this way, we are not free, I'm going to say it negatively, we are not free to be conjecturable in our worship of the triune God. Does that make sense? We don't, we're not free to, to conjure up whatever we want about God and attribute it to God as if that is straight gospel. Now, to give you some ancient Near Eastern context, 
In the pagan world, images of a local deity were believed to be the exact location of that particular deity. So household gods, um, even Rachel stole them from her father Laban uh, when Jacob was there working. Uh, and that was a whole, that's an interesting story in Genesis. But the, the household gods were made and they, people genuinely believed that that's where the location of that particular deity was at that particular time. The small object was, be, was believed to be the place where the deity's presence were made manifest. Now, pagan worship meant that you bowed down before the object because the object carried with it a very, the very essence of the god or the gods. So through ritual practices, uh, the idol would be cared for in order to help the god perform its responsibilities better. What a god, right? I'm going to make this thing out of wood. I'm going to bow down and prostrate myself before it. I'm going to worship it, sing its praises, in hopes that it'll be a better god. But that's what they believed. Think of Elijah on the, on, on the mountain with the prophets of Baal and the, the fire scene of the wa- in the water. And, and uh, you know, Elijah, somewhat uh, in the scatological humor, says, maybe your God's in the bathroom on the toilet. Um, there's debate on the Hebrew of that, by the way, but interesting idea. <laughs> so having a wooden statue of some pagan god meant that the revelation of that god, accompanying, accompanied with proper worship and service of the idol, made the worshiper whole. So the God was deficient, but so were you. Right? And we, we remember from last week, the idols we make are a reflection of us. Idols are mirrors. So that's essentially what they would do. They, they would make, a, make a, a wooden statue and carve it up real nice and bow before it and praise it, believing that that God was present and that if they did that, they would be whole. And if they did that, the God would then be whole. So it's kind of a mutual thing. But what, you, what Yahweh rules out here in the second commandment is this type of pagan practice. You're not allowed to do that. It's not even the image of the idol per se, though that is still part of the problem. Rather, it's the worldview and presuppositions of the pagan and his practice of worship that is wholly unlike what God has revealed himself to be. It's wholly unlike what God has revealed himself to be. Yahweh cannot be reduced down to a mediatory idol that needs to be made. Why can't God be reduced down to a mediatory idol that needs to be made? Because God is uncreated. He's wholly different. God can't be reduced down to a mediatory idol that needs to be made because he isn't made or cleaned because you had to keep it nice. Otherwise, if it get dirty, the God might suffer or you might suffer. But why, why is God unlike this idol that needs to be cleaned? He doesn't need to be clean. He's holy. So not only not made, Yahweh is not made like the idol, or not needing to be clean because he's holy like the idol is not. God himself is unlike it in the sense that that idol needs to be praised as if Yahweh is lacking and insecure. God is completely unlike that silly statue that you make to bow down before. Now, idols are those things. They are all of those things. They are unholy, thus stained. They need to be made. God is uncreated. And they need to be praised as if God is insecure. He's not. So don't make images, he says, and don't you dare bow down to them. The literal use of idols is prohibited. The uh, the use of idols and images is prohibited in worship, um, unequivocally forbidden in Leviticus 26. It says this, Verse 1, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. 
and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. Unequivocally forbidden. You just don't do that. You do not bow down to any sort of representation of Yahweh. It is a sin. And the reason is because we are not free to worship God however we want so long as our intentions are pure. That's, that's the mark of false religion right there. Well, the, the Muslims are sincere in their worship. So we should, I'm, I'm talking like Oprah here. We should, we should treat them respectfully, and their God is just as legitimate as any other God because they're very sincere. Now, the other unique thing about this command, in comparison to the others, is the fact that Yahweh connects the making with the worshiping. Again, it's not about making art. It's about mediation and an attempt to approach God on your own terms. That's the issue. So the heart of the command is to avoid imagining God however you wish. You are not free to imagine Yahweh however you wish. And you're not free to speculate about God however you wish. You are not permitted to do that. It's about making sure that you approach God on His terms, keeping your vain imaginations out of the picture. So God has revealed Himself accordingly, which means we are forbidden we are forbidden from trying to twist that revelation into a pretzel of wild conjecture and presumption. And the text goes on to give us the reason for the command. Yahweh's a jealous God. Yahweh's a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation to those who hate Him. Yet there's also a promise attached to it. He shows steadfast love to thousands of those who keep who love Him and keep His commandments. Now, this I want to clarify because some people struggle with this, the doctrine of the jealousy of God. But God is jealous because of His affection for Israel as a son. Okay? But He's also jealous for another reason. And because the relationship between Yahweh and Israel is analogous to a marriage. It's analogous to a marriage. Israel is his bride, and we should be jealous for the attention of our spouses. So you making an idol to worship God, speculating about God, could be a mental idol, could be a physical idol, but you doing that is the same thing as you and your wife fighting because you don't tell her you love her, but, well, honey, I have your picture in my wallet. It, it proves that I love you. I'm giving you my attention through this picture. Wives, will that make you feel loved? No. It's the same principle here in the second commandment. See, to, to, to be jealous is to love fiercely, to be passionate about someone. But to be idolatrous is the opposite. To be idolatrous is to fornicate and to be spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual uh, idolaters. That's why this comes into play. Jealousy guards against this. Now, what about the third and fourth generation? Does God just curse, curse the sins of the father, go on to the rest of the, you know, the, the line? I want to I clarify that because it's somewhat confusing. Oftentimes, the third and the fourth generation would live together in the same house. So think, think like Old Testament culture. Oftentimes, they would all live together in the same house, working on the farm together. Great-grandpa was there working with the great-great-grandson. Okay, and the reason for that is it's fairly, it's, it's weird to us because we don't function that way typically. 
But it was fairly well understood that this punishment was the punishment of an entire household at one time. We've seen, we have two examples, there are more, but two especially. We've seen it before in Joshua 7 with the sin of Achan. Remember, Achan kept some of the idols. God said, don't take any of them, but he took some. And him and his whole household was punished. The other one is Korah's rebellion in number 16. That's a fun passage, kids, because the earth swallowed up the whole bunch of people. It was really great. God, God judges. Now, in this culture, you had, when a young girl reached 13 or 14 and 15, she was ready to be married and have children. That's just how they functioned. So very easily would it be possible for you on your ranch with your horse farm and your garden and your whole, you know, the whole homestead here, it would very, very, be very easy for a family to have three or four generations living under one roof or at least living on the farm together. It would have been very easy when you get married that young and you're having children, you know, could be four or five generations possibly, depending on how long someone lived. So God says that here, he says here that to sin against him in this way is to provoke his jealousy and his wrath, and he will judge the entire family for the sins of the male heads. God takes this command very seriously. But there's also blessing There's a blessing for obedience. He shows himself faithful to thousands of generations. The blessing of obedience will always surpass the judgment, uh, the judgment for disobedience. And that's because history moves from wrath to grace, from idolatry to true worship. God is purifying his people. He's purifying the world into the great post-millennial future. I want to say something, just a personal note. So Friday, we went up to the service in Hershey for Mary's grandfather. And this was sort of the theme there because, and Mary, you're gonna to have to remember the, the numbers. How many grandchildren? 73 grand and 70 grand So, yes. And like almost all of them are walking with the Lord. And, and you just think, like, and he knew almost all their names too. He knew all their names. So 30 some grandchildren and 70 great grandchildren. And, and Mary's grandfather, his name was Donald, Donald Culp. He was a godly man and was a Gideon for 50 years, wanted Bibles in the hands of anybody and everybody he could. He was on, on um, when he was in the hospital, just evangelizing the, nation, the, the nurses and, you know, wanting to preach the gospel to the nation. So he started right where he was. And, and, um, but that's, a, that's an example of God's faithfulness, his faithfulness to generations, to those who love him and those who keep his commandments. So I want to explore this commandment a little bit more. At the heart of the commandment is the prohibition against man's speculative proclivities. Man's speculative proclivities. How should we think about God? How should we think about God? Children, you need to know this too. And parents, you have a tough job because we need to teach them how to think about God. How do we think about God? And how should we respond to such thinking about God in our actions? What do we do with what we know God to be like? Now, sometimes the the problem with this, when we don't have a good view, this is called in theological circles, will worship. Will worship, meaning that we approach God in life, in God's world, on the basis of whatever we feel like at the moment. We don't consider how God may feel about something, so we choose our own way. We worship God however we will. This is the underlying problem, imagining God in our minds 
wrongly. How do we understand God? We should take this seriously. How do we communicate, uh, how do we communicate to our children what God is like? Because for most people, a lot of kids who grew up in the church, maybe you're here and you grew up in the church, it was Old Testament angry God, New Testament nice God. And that's how it's perceived. I think perhaps, our, the, the, perhaps the greatest problem facing the church today, aside from the menacing problem of statism, you want to talk about an idol that we've bowed down to, the state is surely at the front of that line. But I think one of the greatest problems is the violation of this very commandment. And I'll tell you what I mean. Let me say it differently. Perhaps our greatest problem isn't so much that Christians worship false gods other than Jesus, though that certainly could be the case, but that they worship the God of the Bible based on their own imaginations. You know, you've heard it before. My God would never punish someone in hell. And you're right. Your God would never do that because your God doesn't exist. See, the second commandment tells us that Yahweh isn't just one of the boys. Yahweh isn't just one of the boys. The triune God isn't to be trifled with when it comes to vain speculation. When the Israelites, as Emberly read, when the Israelites had crafted the golden calf, they called it Yahweh. These were the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt, as though it was God, that was the God who had delivered them. And J.I. Packer points out that when they did this, they were using their imagination to conceive of Yahweh in terms of power without purity and holiness. They wanted a God who was powerful enough to do that. They had saw Pharaoh's army drown in the Red Sea. They had seen amazing things. So they wanted a powerful God. So they used their imagination to craft this powerful God. And as I mentioned earlier, Aaron's greatest excuse in the history of mankind. Yeah, we just threw in the gold and... <laughs> What do you know? This calf popped out. I mean, we didn't expect that. Shocking. See, they knew that it was power that, led, that had led them through the Red Sea. But to create an image of Yahweh and bow down to said image in, in worship and service is to sin. It's to commit spiritual adultery. And I love the scene on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, because God's like, hey, Moses, yeah, those knuckleheads are screwing up already. You've been up here five minutes. They're already imagining God however they wish instead of being there at the mountain and being revealed to, they decided to quickly figure out a way to deal with this. See, for them, God isn't altogether holy, holy, holy. God isn't altogether holy, holy, holy if man can conjure up an image of him. If us as finite people with finite minds can conjure up whatever we want God to be like, we are immediately erasing His holiness. And the Israelites went wrong when they began to think, well, you know what? This is how I like to think of God. This is how I like to picture God. If you've ever said that, we'll just go ahead and all collectively repent today. You know, I like to think of God like a butterfly. Airy, floaty, pretty. Sometimes, you know, they get caught in the rain. But other than that, God's like a butterfly. Don't ever say that. Don't say that. 
And we circle back to what I said a minute ago. Perhaps our greatest sin in the church is imagining that the triune God of the Bible can be defined on our own terms. And the reason this is the case is because we oftentimes live by the eye and not the ear. We live by the eye and not the ear. Here's what I mean. In Deuteronomy 4, we have a scene where Moses is addressing the congregation of Israel. They had seen God do some miraculous things, but they hadn't actually seen Yahweh. They ha- they've never saw Him. They had not seen Him and, and all His glory. Now, recounting the Mount Sinai experience, Moses, Moses tells us, you might want to flip there, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4, 11 through 14. I'll just read that real quick. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to, to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you were going to, to possess. Notice what Moses says. You heard the sound of words. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. You saw no form of Yahweh. There was only a voice. Think about your eyes for a second. Kids, everybody look, look, look at me with your eyes. Let me see your eyes. Okay? See your eyes? God gave you eyes for a reason. In the Bible, the eye is what we call the organ of evaluation or the organ of judgment and perception and analysis. When you look with your eyes, you see things, right? You see the people around you. You see that it's raining a little bit right now. You see the parking lot. You are evaluating the the world around you. God sees we know in the Bible, his creation, and he evaluates it. He calls it good in Genesis 1. Um, Remember what happened with Eve in the garden. What did Eve do? She saw with her eyes that the forbidden fruit was a delight. She perceived, she judged by seeing something. And thus she plunged, her and Adam plunged the world into sin and ruin. But God made, made our eyes so that we could see his world But the one thing that we must not do with our eyes is judge God by what we see. That's the issue. And I believe this is what Paul meant when he says that we live by faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. And then we get to Exodus 34. Moses, remember when he came down off the mountain, he broke the tablets, the first tablets that God had written by his spirit. The finger of God um, is used and he gets mad, he breaks it. So then they have to go back and you got to get another set because they didn't have Gorilla Glue. <laughs> Nor would that have probably even worked. But Moses has to go and he engraves the second set, but he engraves it with words, not hieroglyphics or cave inscriptions or pictures. He engraves it with words. And the tablets are proper graven images. That's the language here in Exodus 34. The tablets are graven images. They were engraved, and thus they were allowed because that's how God revealed himself. Peter Lightheart, he comments, he said, Yahweh declares, commands, and writes on the tablets. At Sinai, he does not show himself. 
God did not show himself on Sinai. Remember the mountain was dark and cloudy and fire and, and, and thunder and all this stuff. Yahweh is the unseen God who speaks. He is word, end quote. See, if the eye is the organ of judgment and perception and evaluation, and you kids, you look with your eyes and you see, ah, oh, yes, that, that cookie looks delightful to me. If you, that's what you use. But if that's the case for the eye, guess what the ear is? The ear functions completely different. Because what do you children need to do to obey your parents? Well, you have to hear what they say, right? You can't just look, look at their eyes with your eyes. You have to be able to, to hear it. You have to be able to discern what's being said. So the ear in the Bible is connected to obedience. The ear is connected to obedience. So hearing, not seeing, gets us into a posture of submission before God. And that's because he judges us, not the other way around. To hear the word of God is to be shaped and molded by it, by God in God's terms. And this is why the doctrine of, of Scripture is important. The doctrine of the infallibility, inerrancy, and inspiration of Scripture is so important. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just drop a movie out of the sky? and revealed himself that way. There's a reason. God has chosen us to, to give us words to hear and not pictures to see. That's how he chose to reveal himself. And right now, we have a generation of Christians who do not want anything to do with biblical law or stin biblical standards. Now, you could spend five minutes on the campus of Georgetown or even George Mason University there in Fairfax, and you will run, in five minutes, I guarantee it, you will run into a student who grew up in the church but couldn't see God being the way he is revealed in Scripture. They are everywhere. My God would not do blank. My God would not be angry at sin. My God would tolerate every sort of gender we can conjure up. My God would tolerate any appetite I come up with. I've heard it before, hundreds of times. That's what they say. And they're everywhere. And the correlation is between this, there's a correlation between idolatry of this sort and the degradation and decline of a culture. There is a correlation, and I would argue a causation. <laughs> See, a society is only as healthy as its ability to listen to the word of God. It's only as healthy as its ability. Your family is only as healthy as your ability to listen to the Word of God. That's it. And, and as a culture, we're not healthy. And therefore, we've got an idolatry problem. This idolatry problem stems from trying to conceive of God on our own terms and our own terms and conditions. We imagine that the God of the Bible, or the, we imagine that the God of the Old Testament was grumpy and stern, and since God had a public relations problem, he went ahead and sent Jesus. Jesus had nice flowing hair. He, he, he always made sure to brush it accordingly. Um, he was always nice and coy, and he always tried to woo us back into the fold. Perhaps Perhaps, God says, a buy one, get one free campaign will work. I'll just talk more about grace and maybe win them over. That's how people conceive of the God of the Bible. Of course, we know this is erroneous and treacherous speculation, and it's driven a wedge between the law and the gospel for a long time. We've been limping along because of that for a long, long time, many years. And any time the church has gotten off course, one can trace it back to conceptualizing God in a way prohibited by the second commandment. 
Now you might think, Chris and I have talked about this before, there's a church plant in town that is, uh, they were advertising, they were meeting at the other park uh, at the Friendship Pavilion, which we put a flag there and says it's ours, but I guess we can share. And uh, this church denies the Trinity. They deny the Trinity. They believe that there is one God who reveals himself from time to time as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, that's a heresy. Now, if you conceptualize God, God that way, you will go to hell. So th this is not something to trifle with. We need to hear the word and know what the word says and be resolute in our families to make sure our kids aren't wandering around a college campus someday unsure if their God would do X. They need to know. They need to hear. Children, you need to hear and listen to the word of God, whether that's here or in your home, because you need to have a right view of God. So how do... <laughs> there are... You know, examples of this false view are legion. I mean, the, the false view of the law and the gospel, which is driven by a false view of God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, they're different gods, that sort of thing. Um, an erroneous view of eschatology, which tries to escape our responsibility to disciple the nations here on earth. I mentioned the false view of the Trinity. Um, some people think all we need is the death and resurrection of Christ, but they don't know that the Spirit is there to give us power every single day. Okay, exercising gifts and service and so on and faith, repentance and faith. Some, some will reject the doctrine of hell because God is mean. That's just mean. Or how about, you know, Jesus is a socialist. So therefore, let's embrace Marxism because clearly Marx was getting his ideas from the Gospels. There are people that believe that. And on and on and on we could go. And as I wrap up, I want to I land making a very important point, so don't miss this. The second commandment rules out the worship and service of images meant to be as a mediatory representation of Yahweh. And the reason he's ruling out any sort of man-made mediation between God and us is because he's already made an image that he desires. And who here is made in the image of God, we all raise our hands. We are his images. Now, Christ is the image who restores that image, but we are the images. From the very start, God made male and female in his image to reflect God in the creation temple. So in a very real sense, Adam and Eve in the garden were to be prophets, priests, and kings in that garden world, mediating God's presence, mediating God's kingdom. That's what, that was their task. And part of the reason Adam and Eve were given the command and ability to procreate was to fill the earth and subdue it in order to claim Yahweh's sovereign lordship over the entire earth. Now, as the biblical family would grow, the church grew, the influence of God grew, and Yahweh's lordship thus was affirmed in the world. So, here's, here's kind of your takeaway. We're not to make images because we are the image. This is partly why I believe Paul says what he says in Romans 1. To worship and serve images is to participate in an unholy exchange. We trade, the glory of, we trade our glory in that moment for the glory of a false image. We trade the glory of God for the glory of creation. The creator is no longer worshipped. Creation is worshipped. And when this happens, the image of God in you is distorted. It's maligned. 
And instead of expanding the glory of God through biblical families and social orders that reflect pure and holy worship, which leads to justice and righteousness being ubiquitous in the world, instead of that, we conceive of God on our own terms, dehumanizing our God-given glory, and thus we make injustice and unrighteousness prevail upon the land. So to love God is to worship and serve him rightly. To reflect him as image bearers is obedience. And only through the gospel does Christ restore that in us. To love neighbor, the person next to you, is to be a living sacrifice in obedience to God. To serve other image bearers so that God is exalted on the earth. And I'll end with this. I'm just going to, if you want to pull out your bulletin there, you can follow along. The catechism tells us what is required of us. What are the duties? Well, the receiving, observing, and keeping uh, uh, pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances God hath instituted in his word. Preaching should be that, exposing God's word, uh, the encouragement of that. Uh, it goes on, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. Are you praying in your home? Are you thankful in your home and in your car when you're by yourself? The reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration and receiving of the sacraments, what we call the Lord's Supper and baptism. Church government and discipline. Are we, Melanie kind of touched on this earlier, but the, we're in this. We're in this and it's messy, but forgiveness is there. Are we partaking of that? Are we being truthful with one another? Are we man pleasers or are we fearing God above all? Ministry and maintenance thereof. Religious fasting times of fasting, swearing by the name of God, invoking the name of God properly as you invoke him to give witness to something, knowing that he is fierce and he will judge accordingly. Uh, that's what happens, in, by the way, for your wedding vows. You took, God, you took vows before God. You invoked God. So if you don't act right, he has judgment for you. And it's a purifying judgment, but nonetheless, it will bring you to repentance. Um, vowing unto him. Also, this is the key. The disapproving, detesting, opposing of all false worship. Sound the alarm on statism, right? And according to each one's place and calling, removing it, tearing down the idols and all the monuments of idolatry. That's what's required of you. No small task. So you can take this and meditate on it. But let's pray. Father, you've been good and gracious to us. You have revealed yourself in your word. Lord, you have sent Jesus, and many have seen him face to face. And we are his friends because of it. You have brought us here by the gospel, and you have made us whole by the gospel. So, Father, I pray that we would take seriously these ten words and seek to live in obedience to them. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.